This is the Retirement Detective Podcast, where we dive into cases with Philip Mock, chartered financial analyst and certified financial planner professional, to solve common retirement and financial planning questions. Get insight into how to solve quandaries that appear on the path to and through retirement, ideas on how to approach savings and investing for retirement, and how to plan for retirement in a tax-efficient manner. Now, here's your host and lead retirement detective, Philip Mock. Hi, everyone. It's Philip Mock here with the Retirement Detective Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to dissect some financial advisor designations. There are hundreds of different designations that a financial advisor may possibly have, but I humbly think some are better than others. Some are more rigorous than others. And I'm going to give you insight into a tool you can go check out online where you can look up what designations mean and assess whether it's the sort of designation you're happy with with your advisor. And maybe you can learn a little bit more about designations you've heard of maybe or with an advisor that you're potentially interviewing. We're going to dive into that in today's episode. Before we dive into today's material, a couple of things. First of all, in my office suite next door, they are hammering away and using power tools. So I've adjusted some settings so that hopefully that's not coming through on the recording. But if it does, I apologize in advance. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for them to finish and they're not. So I needed to record and here we are. Number two. The website is up, so if you want to check out the website for the podcast, head on over to www.retirementdetective.com. Again, that's www.retirementdetective.com, and you can listen to episodes there, see the show notes there, you can submit On the contact us portion, you can submit episode ideas if you have them or if there's something you have a question about. There's also an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, which I promise it's not going to be spammy. I'm just going to be sending out summaries of episodes and some other helpful tools. Emails will probably come out maybe once or twice a month at most. And you can always unsubscribe if you don't want to receive it anymore. Additionally, you'll be able to learn a little more about me, the the mythical person whose voice you listen to, and all of that is out on the website, which is www.retirementdetective.com. As always, the best way to stay up to date with episodes is to subscribe wherever you consume podcasts on something like Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google Podcasts. We're on all of them. With that behind us, Let's jump into today's episode. So I went to a FINRA tool, and FINRA is a uh, government organization that oversees brokers and broker-dealers, and they have a tool that allows you to look up different professional designations, and I thought it might make for a good episode today. On that website, there are over 200 different designations that 
a financial advisor, at least one, has purportedly put out there and used as, you know, something to show their expertise or something like that. As an investor, that's really challenging because that's 200 different acronyms. You know, it's uh, after their name, comma, and then three or four letters to indicate their expertise. Now, expertise is a challenging word here because not all designations are created equally. Some are extremely rigorous and take years to complete. Others, maybe a 30-question test after an hour-long webinar, and that's it. So if you're working with an advisor or a friend is or family or you're interviewing advisors and they have designations, I think it's really important for you to understand what they are. Now, I'm a little biased. I think there's probably four or five really great designations, and then the rest are kind of um, nice to have, but maybe aren't really that meaningful. If other advisors listen to this podcast, I may ruffle feathers, but that's okay. That's my opinion. So I'm going to walk you through some of these, and full disclosure, I have some of these, and I'll be sure to point out which ones those are, but... I, I just think it's important to understand this because it's really overwhelming. When I looked at the list, and I've been doing this a long time, but when I looked at the list of different uh, designations out there, I was shocked at how many there are. Most of them start with a C, but there are a bunch. And for someone that's not as educated about these things, they're not in the industry, I'm sure some of these can be made to sound really impressive when maybe when you pull back all the layers, they're really not. Now, I've got some information here on some of the most common ones that I feel like I see, but not necessarily saying that these are the best or anything like that. Um, I do think some of these are, are kind of the preeminent ones, and I'll kind of talk on that. But at the end of the day, it's important to note that I'm not endorsing any of these or approving of them or, or whatever, I'll, I'll disclaim where I am one of these, but um, I do think there are some that are certainly more rigorous than others, um, and we're going to talk through that. So first of all, let's talk about one that is definitely unique compared to the others, and that's the CPA license. So a CPA is a certified public accountant, and it's offered and distributed by the 50 states. So each state has some sort of accountancy board or board of accountancy that oversees accountants and they're the ones that issue the license. Now the CPA exam is a national exam. Uh, it's four parts and you have to have a certain number of accounting hours that you took in college. Most accountants either have at least a bachelor's degree, many are master's degree holders because for a long time, uh, the CPA exam has required 150 credit hours to sit. The biggest difference between the CPA and all of these other ones we're going to talk about is all of the other ones are designations. This is a license. So a designation is basically you take some, you do some study work, you take some tests, perhaps you meet an experience requirement if that's required. But more broadly, you just meet the requirements that they make you be held accountable to. 
And then they give you license to use those letters and that designation uh, to promote your expertise. So you, you did all these things, you studied, and now you have this designation. CPA is different. It's a license, much like uh, a doctor has a license to practice medicine or an attorney is licensed to practice law. An accountant is licensed to practice accounting, which can be uh, auditing, bookkeeping, taxes, financial planning, lots of different things. But there are some things that really require that accounting license and accountants are the one to do that. A big key other difference with it being a license and it's administered by each state, you know, those are government organizations, CPAs that misstep can actually be fined. So you can have dollar penalties assessed against you if you do something wrong. Now, most states have a CPA lookup tool where you can check on a CPA, check their history, see how long they've been licensed, see if they've had any uh, ethics violations or anything like that. But if they're a CPA and they're licensed, that is a license from the state that they can, you know, you have, there are some things you have to have that to do. You cannot do surgery on someone unless you are licensed to be a doctor and have surgery fellowship and all that, all that stuff. Accountants are the same. There are some things you cannot do for other people for money unless you're an accountant. And if you try to do those things and you're not an accountant, you could face penalties. If you are an accountant and you do those, do those things wrong, you may face a penalty. So CPA is a, uh, a designation you'll see with a lot of advisors potentially. And it's just different because it's a license. It means they went to school. They probably studied accounting or they have a lot of accounting hours and they're an accountant. So that one stands kind of on its own. Now, all the rest of these that I'm going to talk about today are designations. So they are not uh, licenses in the same way that the CPA license is. It's a matter of taking a test, meeting all the prerequisites. And once you've done that, you may have to do some continuing education or some other things along the way to maintain the right to continue losing, using that license, or you might lose it. I'm sorry, maintain using that designation or you might lose it. But at the end of the day, you meet the criteria, they give you the right to use it. And if you stop meeting that criteria, then you no longer have the right to use it. Let's talk about a couple. So there's a certified financial planner. Full disclosure, I am a certified financial planner. It is uh, issued by the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards and you must have a college degree and approximately three years work experience. And then you must have also completed a CFP registered education program or in exchange for the education, if you have another designation and there's about six or so different ones that they'll accept, if you have one of those, then you don't have to meet the education requirement. You have to take a test and then you have to have 30 hours of continuing ed every two years. Now, here's my personal opinion. For people that do financial planning, I believe this is the preeminent designation. That's just my personal opinion. So that's the certified financial planner. The next one on my list of short 
ones to go through today. Oh, and the Certified Financial Planner, it's uh, CFP for short. So you might see CFP after someone's name. The next one on my list is the Chartered Financial Consultant, the CHFC for short. It is issued by the American College for Financial Services. Candidates have to have three years of full-time business experience and at least a high school diploma. So this one does not even require a college degree. Uh, you have to do eight online self-study courses, and then there is a final exam. You have to do 30 hours of continuing ed every two years. So at least compared to the CFP, I think a key difference one here is that the CHFC does not actually even require a college degree, but it does require work experience. I do see this designation a lot it tends, in my opinion, to be more common for people that come from a brokerage or insurance background, um, but you, you'll see this one a lot. Um, so you can check that one out, learn more at the American College for Financial Services. The next one I have on my list is the AAMS, the Accredited Asset Management Specialist. So it's AAMS for short. This is a investment heavy designation, uh, not as heavy as another one we're going to talk about, but it's issued by the College for Financial Planning, which is owned by Kaplan. There are no prerequisites for this designation. It is a online self-study course, and then there's an exam, and there's 16 hours of continuing ed every two years. This one you can learn more about at the College for Financial Planning, but that is the Accredited Asset Management Specialist and it's kind of a more investment-focused designation. A couple things that stand out to me on this, there is no work experience prerequisite or, uh, from what I can see, collegiate requirement, but there is an exam and there is continuing education requirements, which I, which I think are good. The next one on my list is the Accredited Investment Fiduciary, which is the AIF, the AIF is offered by the Center for Fiduciary Studies, and candidates have to have um, some combination of education, experience, and that sort of thing. Um, they use a scale, so I can't exactly say how much of each is required. If you have more education but less experience, that might work, or if you have less education but more experience, that might work too. Um, you have to complete a course, or a uh, project, a capstone type project final program, and then there's an exam and there's some continuing ed each year. You typically see this designation associated with someone that's an expert in employer retirement plans. So if they work with 401k plans a lot or 403b plans, the AIF designation tends to show up. So I see that one a lot. The next one on my list is the Chartered Financial Analyst, or CFA. Full disclosure, I am one of these. This one, you have to have a college degree. Uh, to complete the program, you do are able to actually take the first exam in uh, at the end of your collegiate studies. So you could still be in school taking the, the last exam. You have to have approximately 4,000 hours of work experience in investment decision-making, which is typically a 
you know, equivalent to about two years of work experience. Um, there are three progressive uh, proctored in-person or computer-based exams, and it's a self-study program. So this one has a, uh, oh, and you have to submit professional reference letters as a prerequisite. So, so this program, I guess, uh, is kind of similar to the CFP in that you have a work experience and a collegiate requirement. Uh, this one's unique in that it requires professional reference letters. It's three exams, not just one. I will tell you that from my personal experience that the CFA exam was the most grueling, difficult experience of my life. So I, I'm not going to be bashful about saying how difficult this exam is. Now, I do think it's the sort of thing that if you were to vote time to it, anybody could get through it eventually. I'm not an expert on the pass rates and how many people that start it, finish it, and that sort of thing. That sort of stuff can be looked up. But this is an investment-heavy designation. So I think if you're doing financial planning or something, this is probably not the designation for you. Or if you're looking for a financial planner, um, having this designation is great, but you know maybe you want to look for it in conjunction with another designation. But this, in, this designation is definitely heavy in investments, statistics, economics, and that sort of thing. When I went through the program, it took me uh, about three and a half years to get through the program due in part to the fact that uh, the second and third exam were only offered once a year. Uh, that's been changed. So you can get through the program a little faster than I was able to back in the day. Uh, and I also had to take the exams on paper and now they've switched to doing some computer-based exams, which I think is great. So it's issued by the CFA Institute that who puts on, that's who puts on the uh, CFA exam and who offers the chartered financial analyst designation. The next one I have here is the certified divorce financial analyst. This one I'm seeing a lot more um, and it's CDFA for short, and it's put out by the Institute for Divorce Financial Analysts. This requires a bachelor's degree with some on-the-job experience, approximately three years, uh, or if you don't have a college degree, five years of work experience. There is an exam, and you have to do some continuing ed require, uh, uh, continuing ed. You, from what I can see, do not actually have to attend a specific course to take the exam, but I mean, I'm sure you're going to have to do some studying in order to actually pass it. I believe, here's my opinion again, I do not have this designation, but I do believe that it is the preeminent designation if you are uh, going through a divorce or know someone that's going through a divorce. The people that have this designation have special training on uh, valuing assets, uh, maybe even some forensic type things to help locate assets. So when it comes to the finances of going through a divorce, I think CFPs, CPAs, et cetera, do have some of the basic skill sets required, but they don't necessarily know how to take those skill sets and apply them to the complicated intricacies of divorce. So it's my understanding this designation kind of helps bridge that gap, also throws in some forensic work and some psychology because um, anyone that knows anyone that's going through a divorce, it's very challenging from a um, 
well, many different standpoints. So I think this is a, a great designation to look for if you know someone in that situation. The next designation here is the CTFA, which is the Certified Trust and Fiduciary Advisor. It is offered by the American Bankers Association. And this is a designation that you often see with bankers and people that work at trust companies. It's less common to see it with financial advisors. Um, there is a, a work experience requirement and you have to complete the training program if you don't have as much experience. If you have more than five years experience, then you um, you don't have to go through the program. Then there's an exam and continuing ed that you have to complete. So this is put on by the American Bankers Association. So I think a key thing to keep in mind with this designation is that it's typically associated with bankers or trust officers at a trust company. I believe here's my personal opinion that if you are working with someone at a trust company, this is the preeminent designation to have because their expertise is in trusts and that's what this covers. So um, I think if you want someone that has that trust expertise and, or want to find someone at a trust company, this is the designation to look for. So, those are, I don't know, what do we go through? Seven, eight of the 200 or so that are out there. So I think a couple things to look for are, does the designation require um, a college degree or not? Now, I, you know, I have my humble opinion on that. I personally think that college is valuable still, um, but you make your own decision as to whether or not that's something that you're going to require then look for what are the work experience requirements? What are the exam requirements? Um, you know, the CFA, especially back in the old days, was a, a multi-year experience for me uh, to get through. Not, you know, it just, even if you pass all of the exams the first time, you were looking at a multi-year experience. Now, there are other designations out there that I'm not going to mention because I don't want to throw anything under the bus, but some of these are literally... 30 minute online webinars and then a test. And I just think it's very challenging to the investor when you just see the letters. How do you compare a designation that took 30 minutes to get versus a designation that took three years to get when the, the letters might be very similar? And I think that's really challenging. So if you go to FINRA.org, there's a professional designation lookup and that's where I got a lot of my information from for today's podcast in order to, uh, to kind of reeducate myself on some of the ones I'm less familiar with, but yeah, FINRA.org and then the professional designation lookup and you'll be able to look up all of the different 200 or so designations that are out there. Now, one more thing before we call it a day on this episode Investment advisors also typically, there are some exceptions under the law, but have to have a license. So we talked about the CPA being a license, but investment advisors generally also have to have a license. So those are administered by uh, FINRA and the SEC, and they're even more confusing because they're called series exams, and it's series and then a number. 
So for instance, if you're working with a broker, the kind of gold standard license for a broker is the series seven exam. And sometimes that's combined with other exams, depending on if they're going to sell insurance or not, or do options or something like that. The series seven exam is the, the main license for a broker. The series 65 exam is the main license for someone that's an investment advisor, not a broker, but an investment advisor. There are a bunch of other series exams. So, you know, if you do derivatives, that's a different one. If you do options, that's a different one. If you work for a floor exchange, like on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, that's a different one. I'll be honest, I don't know about all of them. There are a bunch though. So you can look up those at a different place. If you uh, go to FINRA Broker Check, you can look up brokers, or if you look up the uh, SEC IAPD, which is the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website, you can look up investment advisors and check out their work experience, check out the designations they might have, uh, see where they went to college, and how long they've been an advisor and whether or not they have any client complaints or anything like that. Um, it's a way to be really transparent with the public about investment advisors and um, whether or not they're doing a good job, how credentialed they are, what their work experience is, etc. So that's FINRA Broker Check and also the SEC website at SEC IAPD, which is the Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. On both of those, you can also actually look up firms. So if you're curious about a firm that a broker or investment advisor works for, you can go to that website and check out the firm and read a bunch of other information about the firm. So in the United States, it's really nice that we have uh, quite a bit of transparency about this sort of thing. I hope you found today's episode to be helpful. There are lots of designations out there, and if you're working with someone and they have some letters after their name and you're not really sure what they mean, and I didn't cover them today, then I encourage you to go to FINRA.org and check out their professional designation lookup tool where you can find out a little bit more about what those are. If you have time, go on and head over to www.retirementdetective.com and check out our website. And I hope that you find it to be helpful. That's all for today's episode. We'll see you next time. This recording strictly is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of the Retirement Detective Podcast. The Retirement Detective Podcast is not affiliated with any guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. The Retirement Detective Podcast does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The Retirement Detective Podcast shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions. This podcast is not a solicitation, 
to purchase or sell securities or a solicitation for advisory services. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, accounting, or other professional services, and nothing in this podcast should be relied upon as rendering legal, financial, accounting, or other professional services. Philip Mock is not a detective or law enforcement officer, and any reference to such is for entertainment purposes only.